Well, I'm glad this is the last time I'm speaking today because I don't think I could do it again. This is probably uh, it for the evening, so I want us to hurry and come to a place of understanding in regard to defending your faith. And this is the third message in the series that we want to undertake. Thank you for the wonderful response thus far to the series, and I trust that in times ahead I'll be able even to have a handout for you of the weeks previous, and I'll be able to to work on that and give that to you next time. Thus far in our series, we have spoken about defending your faith, and we've endeavored to talk about Christianity on the offensive, taking the offensive with regard to your faith. And as you know, two messages ago, we introduced the topic of defending your faith and Christianity taking the offensive. And then last time, in part two of our series, we talked about the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration. We talked about the fact that the Bible, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, are inspired by God, and that God used the writers of the Old and New Testaments with their personalities, their backgrounds, their languages, and their cultures to pen an infallible book. And we saw a number of passages that supported that idea. And when you begin in your presuppositional apologetics to defend the faith, one thing is for sure, and that is once you create in the minds of those for whom you're defending the faith the sure foundation of the Bible and that the Bible is indeed inspired, one of the first questions that comes up is when the Bible is inspired, does that mean that God has only spoken to us there? Is there any way that God has spoken to us outside of the Bible? And that really catapults us into the discussion of the doctrine of revelation. Revelation. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Last time we talked about the Bible's inspiration, and tonight we're going to talk about God's revelation. How does God reveal Himself to us? Is there anything else outside the Scripture for which God reveals Himself to us? And I want to give you tonight what the Bible's teaching is on revelation. Now, first of all, let me define for you what revelation is. Revelation defined correctly, is the act by which God makes Himself known to His creatures. That is revelation. The act by which God makes Himself known to His creatures. And what we must do is we must distinguish that concept, revelation, from inspiration, because they are distinct Remember I said to you last time that inspiration is the method that God used to guarantee 
that the Scriptures would be the infallible and inerrant and definitive record of God's revelation. But revelation itself is simply known as God making Himself known or revealed to His creatures. And we're asking ourselves the question specifically tonight, how does God speak to us today? And in order for us to see that, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, which gives us a beautiful picture of the twofold nature of revelation. The twofold nature of revelation. And this, I trust, will be a way that you can defend your faith with those who are asking the question, how does God speak today? How does God reveal Himself today? Inspiration is the method that God used. Revelation is the way God has used to speak to us. It is the means that God has definitively spoken to His creatures. And in Psalm 19, we have the twofold nature of revelation. Let me read the first six verses to you so that we can understand this first way that God has revealed Himself to us. Psalm 19.1, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. In Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, the first kind of revelation that we have is what we could call natural revelation. Natural revelation. Or, as it's sometimes known, general revelation. In other words, God reveals Himself to all His creatures generally or naturally through creation. Or to put it another way, God reveals Himself through the skies, through the world which He has made. And this revelation to us is very, very evident to all peoples. Everyone in the world believes, affirms, acknowledges that there is a God and that He has revealed Himself in our world. Or even God has revealed Himself through our world. You say, is that so? Does every single person affirm or acknowledge or believe that God is who He said He is through this idea of His making the world? Yes. In fact, it is so because Paul the Apostle, under divine inspiration, says it is so in Romans chapter 1. Put your thumb in Psalm 19 and then 
roll over to Romans chapter 1, and I want to show you what Paul says regarding this fact. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, these words, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is it that the man or woman of the world do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And what truth do they suppress? Verse 19 says, That which is known about God is evident within them. That's why I say that every man affirms, acknowledges, believes through irrefutable proof that there is a God and that He has created the world. Because God says in this text, it is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God has revealed Himself to His creatures so that they are without excuse. God clearly tells everyone by the creation that He has made that there in fact is a God and that it is evident within them. Paul says here that His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. You see the words that speak of the mind and perception? It says, that which is known about God is evident within them. His power, His nature have been clearly seen or perceived, being understood so that they are without excuse. You see, everything in that text in Romans 1 cries out for the truth that there is a God and everybody knows it. You say, well, does that mean then that there are really no true atheists? In a strict sense, yes. In a strict sense, there are really no such things as true atheists. They may try to suppress the truth to such a degree that they would convince you and maybe even work toward almost convincing themselves that there is not a God. But ultimately, through the very creation of the world and through what they see, they acknowledge that there, in fact, is a God. Now, they're fools, and that's why the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But the irrefutable proof throughout all of creation, through what has been seen and through what has been made, Every man is without excuse. Yes, it is true that his mind is darkened and that he continues to resist the fact that there is a God, but he cannot get away from the fact that there is a God. And that is what Paul is saying. Nature reveals a God of power, a God of order. There is a deity. Now, maybe that's the only thing that the natural man says in his heart. Maybe that's what he ultimately reduces it down to. Well, maybe there is something out there. Uh, Maybe there is someone out there in the cosmos. But we can't know Him 
uh, we can't understand Him. And if there was something or someone or some infinite reality in the cosmos who created all of this, He certainly isn't involved in our world. He may have cranked it up, but now it's flinging toward infinity without any kind of design or providence. And so, while it may be true that this foolish person says in his heart, uh, there is no God in the here and now, everyone, according to Paul, affirms, evident within their heart, that there is a Creator. Now, in nature, when you look at the skies, when you look at the world, it's very evident that you can see, as Paul says here, his invisible attributes. Because in nature, we can discern that God is a God of law, a God of beauty, a God of wisdom, a God of goodness, a God of greatness, a God of power, a God of might, a God of excellence. It is the rejection of those kinds of invisible attributes and the fact that man suppresses this truth, this reality in his heart, that the Bible calls the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man. And so even though there is this natural revelation, even though Psalm 19 talks about the fact that there is a creation and everybody sees there is such, man tries to suppress that. He tries to say, well, even if that were true out there somewhere, I reject the fact that if there is a God, He has a lordship over my life. And yet, the Word of God says so plainly, And so clearly, here in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. It is unmistakable. It is irrefutable. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. You know what that's really saying there in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 19? That nature speaks at all times. Every time a person wakes up in the morning and there's daylight... Every time a person goes in their car and they're driving through the mountains or the valleys, every time a person walks along a babbling brook, every time someone goes and visits the Grand Canyon, any time someone looks at the, the Alps, we understand that nature demands the truth that God is the creator of the world. Nature speaks at all times. And what David is really saying in those first two verses of Psalm 19 is that nature, creation itself, is constantly speaking forth the glories of God. I mean, it's, very, it's pretty evident to us as Christians, isn't it? I remember when I went out to California to attend seminary, I drove across country, and one of the trips that I took was routing myself by the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Most of us. For believers, it's easy for us to see and affirm that there is a God when you see something like the Grand Canyon, right? You look at that tremendous picture and you say to yourself, how can people not obviously affirm that there is a God? How could any person believe that some blob of protoplasm started this big bang of a world that we see ourselves in, and that when we look at the Grand Canyon, we say, time plus chance plus nothing created this. It's foolish. 
God has given us every indication in our world that He exists. And that's what David is saying. You can see it in the daytime with the beauties of nature. You can see it in the whole world of microscopic marvels that swim, swim in a droplet of pond water. You can see the intricate beauties of a blooming flower, the awesome spectacles of the mountains, the oceans, Niagara Falls, the Sahara Desert. Everywhere you look, nature is filled with wonders that declares God's glory, wisdom, majesty, immensity, and power. And not only that, look what David says in verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 19. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. You say, what does that reveal? Well, if verses 1 and 2 reveal that nature speaks at all times, this says that nature speaks in all languages. Nature speaks in all languages. You see the words that are used there? Uh, There's no speech, nor are there words. It's not as though creation, by the very fact of its being created, is a mouthpiece verbally that there is a God. You don't have trees being created as trees with voice boxes that say, you see, I was created by God. Don't you understand? No. But the very fact that there is a tree created by God speaks itself, not with a voice, not with speech, not with words, but their line, it says, has gone out through all the earth. In other words, there is no language in which nature does not communicate its truths. It's just not verbal. It's just not auditorily. But what you see with your eye and what you perceive with your mind gives us plenty of evidence that nature speaks in all kinds of languages. It just isn't verbal. The same divine creator is revealed to the Oxford English scholar as to the primitive Hottentot. You have a quote-unquote African kind of primitive person versus someone who is schooled in the greatest languages and universities in the world, both of them in a commonality of truth, know one thing for sure. There is something, there is someone behind this creation. They affirm that. You don't have to be educated to affirm that. Nature speaks in all languages. Their utterances, David says in Psalm 19, 4, is to the end of the world. Well, that's a great truth. God's language of creation, of natural revelation, divinely communicating Himself, has gone out to the end of the world. Oh, it's wonderful. And not only that, Verses 5 and 6 says, nature speaks to all people. This creation of revelation, of revelatory thought by God, verse 5 says, is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. You say, what does all that say? 
What it's saying is the truth available in nature is already being declared to the uttermost parts of the earth. No missionaries are needed to carry God's natural revelation to remote areas. It's already there. Isn't that a great platform? You don't have to be a missionary going into a place and trying to convince people that there is a God. In fact, only in those places where a lot of education has already happened will show people or try to demand for people that there isn't a God. You go into remote areas and they already say, we know there is a God. We know there is a supreme being. Now, they may have all kinds of names and all kinds of uh, creatures or all kinds of wooden statues or something that represents to them who it is who made all of this, but you don't have to teach them anything about the fact that something or someone created all of this stuff. They understand that. No one can hide from or escape the truth God reveals Himself in nature. That truth is like the sun reaching to every place on the earth. That's what He's saying. It's rising is from one end of the heavens to the other. As soon as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, everybody affirms that, that by the very fact of it, there is a God. Its circuit is from one end of the other. There is nothing hidden from its heat. This was powerfully communicated in the illustration of Helen Keller. You may have heard this. You remember Helen Keller, blind from birth, deaf, from the time she was nine months old. Until she reached the age of seven, she was utterly unable to communicate to anyone. And you know the story. There was a lady who was bold enough and enough of a servant to sit down with her, Anne Sullivan. She began to work with her. And Anne taught Helen Keller to express herself through sign language and then to read, and then to write, and finally even to speak. And early in the process of her learning, Anne Sullivan told Helen Keller about the God of the Bible. And do you remember Helen Keller's response? Anne Sullivan told Helen Keller about God, and her response was in sign language. And here's what she said. I knew about Him. I just didn't know who He was. Now you tell me if there's a person who's blind and who's deaf, and who's able to begin to communicate first in sign language and then in speech, how they can know that there is a God. Because it's evident within them. God has made it evident to them. And God gave her the wonderful revelation, naturally, for which then when the Bible, God's special revelation, came to her, she said, Aha! I knew there was a God, I just didn't know His name. But as wonderful as the first six verses of Psalm 19 are, do you know that it's not enough to save a person? You know, everybody who could see all of the things that you and I see in creation, or every blind or deaf person who could ever perceive in their hearts the reality of what their life is like, even limited as it is, and even though the wondrous nature of our creation demands that we affirm that there is a God, even though that is all true, it is not enough. It is not enough to save a person. In fact, 
general revelation or natural revelation is only enough to damn us. It's only enough to tell us that there is a God, but there's no way that natural revelation, general revelation, can bring us the light of the glorious gospel of truth on its own. It's enough to reveal to us there is a God, but it's not enough to give us a saving relationship to Him. It's enough to reveal to us the invisible attributes of God, but it's just enough to damn us eternally if we don't receive a special revelation from God. But look what David does, beginning in verse 7 of Psalm 19. He tells us about what we could call supernatural revelation or special revelation. That is God revealing Himself through the Scriptures. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. You see, what King David is doing here is he's saying that in order for us to have a complete revelation about God, we must first affirm that God indeed is the Creator, and that's what He does in the first six verses. He tells us that there's a natural revelation. There's a a generic revelation about who God is. He is the creator of the world. It's very evident from everything that you see and everything that you hear. But that's not enough. David knows that the only way that we can come to know this God intimately, to serve Him and to love Him and to have a saving relationship to Him is to know more about Him. And general revelation does not give us that. But aren't you glad God doesn't stop with general revelation? God gives us a special revelation, a supernatural revelation, a divine revelation as seen for us in the very words of God and scripturated in a book. And it's the Bible. The religion of the scriptures is from beginning to end a supernatural religion. And the supernatural religion that we have been given is revealed to us in the words of the Bible. And though, frankly, many misguided souls have tried, there's no way to divest Christianity of the supernatural element and still call it Christianity. I was saying recently in our Wednesday night class on a survey of the New Testament that Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding members of our country, was a deist. He would be one of those that would say, well, yes, I believe that there is a God who is a God of creation. But I don't believe that he's intimately involved in our world. I believe that he may have created the world and he may have cranked it up in the beginning, but he's just sort of letting it flow out and he has no control of the events of our lives. And therefore, he came to disbelieve all the miraculous elements of the Bible. And in fact, so brash was he that he came up with his own Bible, the Thomas Jefferson Bible, in which he eliminated all of the supernatural instances of the Bible itself. When I was at Grace Community Church, 
someone had a relative of theirs, I believe it was a great-grandmother who died, and they were going through the attic of their great-grandmother's things. And lo and behold, she came upon a small little book called the Thomas Jefferson Bible, and she gave it to me, and I have it in my desk. It's very small. (laughs) Because all the supernatural elements have been taken out. It It is no thicker than that. And what it tells me is this, that Thomas Jefferson went as far as everyone must go in affirming a natural revelation, but he didn't go far enough because what God has given us is a special revelation and he disbelieved it. And no amount of cutting away of the supernatural elements of the Bible does anything for us because we need a supernatural revelation from God. And that's what we've been given in Scripture. You see, at the heart of our faith, if you want to defend your faith, at the heart of defending your faith is the conviction that we have a transcendent God and that He has intervened to save us. And He intervened to save us by giving us a supernatural revelation of Himself. He's personally and authoritatively intervened, interjected Himself into the course of human events, overruling even nature itself in order to gain the salvation of men and women who would otherwise be lost. He injected into the natural element of things a supernatural birth called the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. He injected into the natural element of things a supernatural birth called the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Reversing all of the natural processes and taking a supernatural seed by virtue of the Holy Spirit and injecting that into the womb of Mary so that Jesus Christ Himself could be the God-man born in the flesh. You see, God needed to reveal to us that which we could never have revealed to ourselves if there was to be a salvation for man. And He did just that. But you know what happens? With Thomas Jefferson and the rest of us, we presume ourselves so slick and so smart and so wise that we presume that special revelation is not enough And there are even some of us who come along and say, it's not only not enough, but I deny what's there. Isn't that the height of hypocrisy? God has revealed Himself to us in nature, and then He painstakingly revealed Himself to us through a supernatural revelation. And we say, but I don't believe the Bible. You know, our world is so twisted. Even themselves trying to say, I am the interpreter of all events and I deny that God exists or I deny that God has supernaturally revealed Himself or I deny miracles or I deny that there's a virgin birth or I deny in the supernatural nature of the Bible. And what I said to you last time was that just reveals that man in his sin is supernaturally dead. Spiritually dead. He's just dead to the supernatural. And that's why 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. But that the spiritual man, the one in whom God has injected his life into that soul, 
It says he is spiritually discerned or appraised. He can appraise all things because he has the life of God in his soul. God has given him a revelation of himself. I love what John MacArthur has done when he treated these passages. He said there are six statements here in verses 7 through 10. Each contain three elements. There are six titles for Scripture. It's called law, testimony in verse 7, precepts and commandment in verse 8, and fear and judgments in verse 9. All titles for Scripture. And then there are six characteristics of Scripture. Again, two in each verse. It is perfect, it is sure, it is right, it is clear, it is clean, it is true. And then David gives us six benefits of Scripture. It restores the soul, it makes the wise simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, it endures forever, and it is righteous altogether. And if that weren't enough for parallelism, there are also six occurrences of the covenant name of Yahweh translated in the phrase, of the Lord. And so six times we're reminded that the source of special revelation is from God in six statements about the Word of God. Don't you just love it? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. And do you notice, by contrast of the first six verses, that you could read those first six verses, and you could sit out under a tree and look at creation all you want, and it wouldn't tell you all that stuff. It wouldn't. We need a word, a revelation from God supernaturally. And it has come to us in this book. That's why I love it so. That's why I love it so. And I think what David is doing is he's giving us what we could call the perfect look at the sufficiency of Scripture. The perfect look at the sufficiency of Scripture. What else can do this? What else is perfect and can restore the soul? What else is sure, which makes wise the simple? What else is right, which rejoices the heart? What else is pure and enlightens the eyes? What else is clean and endures forever? What else is true and is righteous altogether? There's nothing else. That's the supernatural revelation of God. You say, what is revelation? It is God revealing Himself to His creatures both naturally and supernaturally, both generally and specially. And if that weren't enough, I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 1 for a New Testament affirmation of the revelation of God. Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4. The writer to Hebrews says, in Hebrews 1, 1, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, 
in these last days has spoken to us in his son, in whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited, has inherited a more excellent name than they. You know what Hebrews is telling us? It's even, it's even going a step beyond what David says in Psalm 19. David says there's a natural creation that tells us of the reality of God. There's a supernatural revelation in the Bible that tells us of the truthfulness and reality that God exists, that He can be known, that He has these attributes, and that Scripture itself affirms that this is so. And the writer to Hebrews says, and it is most seen, perfectly seen, in the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. In these last days has spoken to us in His Son. Oh, this is marvelous. You mean to tell me that God has given me, naturally, a view of Himself that is irrefutable. It is evident within me. And not only has God done that, but He's also given me a supernatural revelation of Himself in the pages of the Holy Bible. And not only that, but God has also given us the supernatural revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. That's too wonderful for me. God has given us every opportunity and might I say every obligation to receive his son to walk in a manner worthy of his son he said that Christ has been appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature all you need to do is look at Jesus Christ and you will see the exact representation of God the Father. What I'm saying is the incarnation of Christ brought the fullest revelation of God we can expect until the final revelation when Jesus Christ returns in the apocalypsis, the apocalypse, the second coming, the end times. All the miracles and prophecies of the apostolic era. All of the additional words of prophecy which are contained in the scripture. Will then be sublimated themselves. To the actual, visible, physical return of Jesus Christ. And if you and I are there. If you and I know Jesus Christ. We'll see the embodiment of not just the written word, but the very living word himself. Jesus himself is the revelation from God. That's why the very purpose of the scriptures, even the Old Testament, is to testify of Christ. He told the Pharisees, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus himself was the subject of all of the scriptures. And the word of God says about him that he is 
the fulfillment of the law. God has given us a revelation. There is no question. And for us right now, the Bible is therefore that highest and most authoritative truth available to us. And as I said this morning, those who subordinate their feelings and their intuitions and their thoughts to the Word of God do well. But those who rise above with their thoughts and feelings and intuition and make the Scripture subject to those err. And we dare not do that. It would be to our own destruction. The only thing we can do is take this revelation from God as contained in Scripture and constantly and fruitfully and intimately study it so that we can know about this Son who has been revealed to us. And it's the only way that we can effectively defend our faith. How would any of us ever expect to go into battle without the greatest weapons available to us? Has God stopped speaking? Absolutely not. He speaks every day through His Word. Every day. Are we listening? Are we listening every day to His Word? Everybody's asking the question, is God still speaking today? And the answer is yes, if you're listening. His Word reveals who He is. And it's only in the Word that we can see that revelation of Himself. That's how you can best defend your faith. Let's pray together. Father, I see that in Psalm 19... David so loved your word that he said it was desirable, more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. That it was sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And that he affirmed that this supernatural revelation of himself is that which warns us, but also that which rewards us. It's that which discerns our errors, and it is that which acquits us of hidden faults. It's that which keeps us back from presumptuous sins. It's that which acquits us of great transgression. No wonder, David said, let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Oh, how he loved your law. It's so sweet. It's so clear. It's so right. It's so true. What keeps us back from studying it as we know we should? What keeps us back from being intimately involved with it, loving it, meditating upon it, 
memorizing it and defending our faith with it. Oh, Father, my greatest prayer would be that this series would be used by you to bring us at the Bible Church back to a place of falling in deeper love with the truth of your word because it reveals yourself. How could we ever expect to defend the onslaughts of the evil one without an intimate knowledge of your truth? I pray that those who are here and who are profiting from our studies would gain a greater understanding and knowledge and intimacy of your word. May you challenge us to understand these very clear doctrinal themes so that we can rightly and powerfully defend our faith. May we do so for your honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen.